please turn in your Bibles or your phones or your bulletins to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'll read the text, and then I'll pray for us one more time. Hear now the reading of God's word. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Please pray with me. Father, you say that your word is perfect and gives life, that your word is sure and makes wise. God, give us new life now by your word through your Holy Spirit. Make us wise as we turn to the scriptures. Help me as I preach. Help us as we listen. Glorify your name and do us good. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the truth is not always what it seems to be at first glance. Uh, initial appearances can often differ from underlying realities. I think that's the case in our passage from Mark's gospel this morning. On the surface, this might have been a really straightforward story. There's a man who needs healing. Jesus is a miraculous healer. After a bit of a traffic jam, Jesus heals the man. Hooray! Curtains. Time for the potluck. Uh, but more than once in this passage, there's a twist. Uh, there's something you didn't see coming. There's something you wouldn't have guessed from a cursory glance at the facts. In this passage, Mark wants us to see past our expectations into the nature of true faith, into the nature of true need, and into the nature of true authority. That'll serve as our outline this morning, Lord willing. First, true faith. Second, true need. And third, true authority. So first, true faith. What does it look like when someone has true, earnest faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the picture of true faith that Mark gives us 
in this passage. Well, in order to figure out what Mark, think, Mark thinks true faith looks like, let's talk for a moment about the characters that we meet in this story. So the character at the center of the action is, of course, Jesus himself. So verse 1 tells us that Jesus has come back to Capernaum after his ministry tour around Galilee. Mark says that Jesus is, quote, at home. Uh, it's very possible, very likely even, that Mark is referring to Simon Peter's home. Remember, Jesus' hometown is Nazareth, uh, but Jesus makes Capernaum his home base throughout his ministry in Galilee, uh, and Simon Peter's house was in Capernaum. We saw Jesus working miracles in Simon Peter's house back in chapter 1. So in these verses, what we find is that around the Lord Jesus are three groups of characters. And the first group of characters is the crowd. The crowd. So after word, that, after word gets out that Jesus is a miraculous healer and an exerciser of demons and a teacher with authority, Jesus becomes really popular. You can't get tickets to go see the Jesus show. When word gets out that Jesus is back in Capernaum, we read in verse 2 that suddenly there's no room even at the door. Approval ratings for Jesus are sky high. Wherever he goes, people want to see him. And so again and again throughout Mark's gospel, crowds form. In fact, the crowd becomes kind of a character throughout Mark's gospel. That word appears 32 times in the book. And generally speaking, the crowd, not always made up of the same people, but often exhibiting the same dynamics, the crowd is usually impressed with Jesus. They have a positive view of him. They like Jesus' miracles and the benefits that come from hanging around Jesus. Down in verse 12, we're told that the crowd glorifies God for what they see. That's an appropriate response, though what they say leaves us kind of questioning whether they really understand what's happened. Well, the crowd does all right in this passage, but from the whole of Mark's gospel, it becomes very clear that being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. One scholar points out the crowd, again mentioned 32 times throughout Mark's gospel, is never described as repenting and believing as Jesus calls them to do. Once or twice, Jesus will actually describe the crowd as unbelieving. And very interestingly, more than once, the crowd gets in the way of what Jesus is trying to do. You kind of see something of that dynamic in this passage. The man who really needs Jesus, he's obstructed by the crowd. So the way that Mark talks about the crowd throughout his gospel it seems to be his way of making the point. Liking Jesus is not the same as true faith in Jesus. Enjoying some of the benefits of hanging around Jesus is not the same as true faith in Jesus. Being around other people who are following Jesus is not the same as true faith in Jesus. In this story, there's a big crowd very impressed with Jesus that enjoys hearing from him. They're entertained by him. But that crowd is not the picture of the true faith that Mark wants to highlight in this passage. A second character or group of characters that I want to mention in this passage is the scribes. 
Uh, Remember, Mark mentioned the scribes back in chapter 1 when we noted that Jesus taught the people with authority and not as their scribes. Remember, the scribes were the legal and religious experts of the day. So word has reached these teachers and leaders. And from verse 6, we can tell that some of them were in the crowd. So Luke's gospel, when it tells the same story, tells us that there were present at this time teachers of the law, probably scribes, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. It's quite possible some of the scribes have come from Jerusalem because in the passage immediately prior, Jesus has just sent a healed leper down to Jerusalem. He says, for a testimony to them, might have gotten their attention and sent some scribes up to Galilee to see what was going on. So the scribes, they took their religion very seriously. Of all the people in the story, other than Jesus himself, uh, the scribes probably had the most theological knowledge. They were far more familiar with their Bibles than the crowd, in a sense, probably more than Jesus' disciples. Did they know their Bibles? And when Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins, the scribes are the ones who realize what that means. They understand the implications of what Jesus is saying. But as we're going to see, these verses don't give us a positive view of the scribes. They introduce the conflict between Jesus and the scribes that continues throughout the rest of Mark's gospel. In these verses, the scribes internally accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And it's not too many more chapters before they do it out loud and condemn him to death for blasphemy. So the scribes, with all their theological knowledge, with all their seriousness about religion, they're not the picture of true faith that Mark gives us in this passage. Not the crowd, not the scribes. A third and final group of characters to mention in this passage is the paralyzed man and his four gritty friends. Look at verses 3 and 4. Mark writes, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. These men display a tenacious resolve to get to Jesus because they know how badly they need him, right? These four guys carry a full-grown man who knows how far, only to find that it's physically impossible to get to Jesus, right? You ever go into something and you realize there's no parking, And it's not just like, oh, there might be parking if I just circled the block a few times. It's that there's literally zero parking, right? He he cannot get through the crowd, through the door to Jesus. I have to confess, I think that at this point, I would at least have been tempted to turn around, right? Sorry, buddy, it's really crowded, right? Maybe we'll try again another time. But that's not these guys. They must get to Jesus. And so crowd notwithstanding, what do they do? They carry this full-grown man up the stairs onto the roof of the house, and they dig through the roof. So what, from what we know about houses in that part of the world in that day, uh, the roof was most likely some combination of uh, clay tiles and then wooden beams uh, with hardened mud. 
So this would have been a dirty and laborious and socially unacceptable thing to do, right? Mark doesn't give us the impression that they waited for a work permit. They don't even seem to ask the homeowner. They just start digging. Why? Because they had to get to Jesus. He was the one that they really, really needed. He was their only shot, and they knew it. So as these guys forge an opening in the, the roof, and as the sunlight streams in, and everyone's attention is suddenly on the fact that, wow, there's a hole in the ceiling, and there's a man coming down through the hole, as everyone's eyes are up, what does Jesus see when he looks at these men lowering their friends? What does Jesus see? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and when Jesus saw their faith, the picture that Mark gives us of true faith is a group of men so desperate to get to Jesus, so convinced that he is the one that they need, that they'll claw through a roof if they have to. A Christian which of these groups does your faith most resemble? Are you most like the crowd? Happy to be associated with the Jesus people, happy listening to Jesus' teachings, but not yourself actually a committed follower of his? Or are you like the scribes, maybe, full of theological knowledge? Maybe you enjoy being esteemed for your theological knowledge? but you're actually threatened when Jesus' lordship impinges on your turf? Or friend, are you like these five men, desperately conscious that they need Jesus, determined to get to him, not to prove themselves, not because they're so hardcore, but because they know they need him at any cost? Friend, is that what your faith looks like whatever sin you might have to turn from, whatever else might be on your schedule, whatever other people might think, whatever inconvenience it might be, you must get to Jesus. You must be close with him. You must have his help, his mercy. To steal some thunder from later in the sermon, are you deeply convinced that your eternal need your desperate, eternal need is for Jesus to forgive your sins through his death and resurrection. And are you convinced that your everyday need, your desperate, everyday need is for Jesus to be with you, to strengthen you, to help you, to uphold you, to walk with you, to make you more like him? This passage gives us a vivid picture of true faith and a group of people who are desperate to get to Jesus because they know that he's the one they need. Which brings us to the second thing we need to see in this passage, and that is the nature of true need. We've seen the nature of true faith, now the nature of true need. Second point. So, so far in Mark's gospel, Jesus has garnered a lot of attention because of his supernatural healing ministry. And that makes sense. Unlike the quacks on TV, if you could at will heal any physical illness, 
you would be international news in a hot second. Jesus is very popular because of his healing ministry. But if you noticed, Jesus seems to prioritize his teaching ministry over his healing ministry. Remember back in chapter 1, everyone is looking for Jesus after his busy day in Capernaum. And so he escapes early to pray. and People can't find him. Simon Peter finds him. He says, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go to the other towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Jesus prioritizes his teaching ministry even above his healing ministry. And we see the same thing in our passage this morning. Right now that Jesus has returned to Capernaum, once the crowds form around him, what's he doing? Look at the end of verse 2. It says, and he was preaching the word to them. But why does Jesus prioritize his message over something that we would prize so highly, right? Total physical healing from any malady. I think the reason for this becomes even clearer in how Jesus deals with the paralyzed man in this passage. I don't think I'll ever forget, I hope I never forget, when I heard this Bible story preached in a chapel service at Patrick Henry College. There was a visiting preacher from a local church, and he asked those of us present at chapel, which should have been all of us because it's mandatory, he said, what is your biggest problem? Well, knowing what season of life I was in, I probably thought something like, well, I am in some really hard classes this semester, and I kind of struggle with anxiety some of the time. I don't get to the gym as often as I wish I could, and my social life is not what I'd like it to be. But other than that, I think I'm, I think I'm doing okay. Right? Well, friend, let me, let me forward the question on to you this morning. What is your biggest problem? What's the problem that's eaten up the most bandwidth in your mind this week? What's the problem that would bring you the most happiness if it went away? What's the problem that's affecting your life most deeply? Well, for the paralyzed man at the center of this story, the answer should be obvious, shouldn't it? Right? Can you imagine life as a paralyzed person in first century Palestine? No wheelchairs, no showers, no hospitals, poor sanitation, no welfare system, no unemployment benefits. Right? What's this man's biggest problem? Clearly, it's that his body is horribly broken. That's clearly his biggest problem. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. That's not what Jesus wants to talk about first. Look again at verse 5. The roof breaks open, the sun streams in, the man comes down. He's clearly paralyzed. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, the paralyzed man who had paralysis, whose friends had brought him to Jesus to get unparalyzed. Jesus said to that man, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus thinks this man's biggest problem is that he needs his sins forgiven. 
That is the true need in Jesus' eyes. It's possible that this man's paralysis has something to do with his specific sins. We don't know. But in any case, it it seems that Jesus sees in this man not just the desire to be healed. He sees a genuine trust in Christ to meet his deepest need. And for Jesus, what this man needs most deeply is not just to have his body healed, but to receive forgiveness of sins. So friend, listen, the claim of the Bible is that whatever else is going on in your life at the moment, though God cares deeply about that and how it affects you, your biggest problem, your deepest need, the thing that Jesus wants to talk with you first about is the forgiveness of your sins. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, First, let me say again, you're, you're super welcome to be here with us. We're delighted that you're here. We hope you come again. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that probably sounds surprising to you, even strange or wrong. Right? Our culture uh, values physical health and comfort extremely highly, and our culture is not exactly famous for valuing uh, the forgiveness of sins. So let me give you three reasons for the Bible's claim that the problem of unforgiven sin is a more serious need than the inconvenience and pain of a paralyzed body. So first, the Bible teaches that sin is at the root of all of our problems. Sin is at the root of all of our problems. So to be very clear, the Bible does not teach that every problem, every difficulty that every person faces is the direct result of that person's specific sins. If you have a flat tire, you catch a cold, The Bible doesn't teach that that's because you've accrued bad karma or something like that. But the Bible does teach that our whole world is deeply broken because of our sin. The reason that futility and sickness and breakdown and excruciating pain and death are in the world is because of sin. When mankind sinned against God, we were exiled from the paradise that God created us to enjoy. The Apostle Paul says that futility was introduced to all creation as a result of sin. And and on top of that, the sad reality is that although not all of our problems are the result of our sin, plenty of our problems are the result of our own sin. The common denominator in all of my relational difficulties is me. My sinful heart and my sinful motives and my sinful attitudes have a lot to do with my discontent and my anxiety. So not all of our problems are traceable to our own sin, but we live in a world of problems because we are a race of sinners who have rejected the God whose rule brings blessing. The second reason sin is our biggest problem, the Bible teaches that sin is the very worst relational problem. I think if we were all to be totally transparent about the problems in our lives, my guess is that relationship problems, they would rank high on the list of most painful things in our lives. Listen, sin is the biggest and worst kind of relationship problem. 
because it's a problem with God. Whenever we sin, whoever else we might sin against, the most offended party is always God because sin defies God's authority. Sin hurts other people who God made and loves. A sin says to God that God doesn't know best. A sin says to God that he himself is not best. And that's why the scribes are actually right in verse 7 when they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? The premise of that question is, sin is ultimately against God. And so if we would have forgiveness, our big need is not to forgive ourselves or ultimately to have forgiveness from another person, but to get forgiveness from the God against whom we've sinned. Our, out, our sins are outstanding offenses against the God of the universe. Apart from Christ, our sins cut us off from the God whose love we were created to know. And when Christ returns to judge the world, unforgiven sins will meet with God's perfectly just judgment. The third reason that sin is our biggest problem is that sin is an eternal problem. So with some problems, it can be actually a pretty good strategy to see if you can just sort of wait it out, right? A headache, a stubbed toe. Right? Just give the problem some time, kind of focus on something else, and it'll probably go away. Friend, listen, the problem of our sin against a holy God is not like that. Apart from Christ, the effects of our sins against a holy God don't go away. They get worse. Right? The misery of paralysis is nothing compared to the misery of hell that Jesus taught is real. Hell is not something that preachers made up to scare people. Jesus Christ, the man of compassion, speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible as the reality that is coming in the face of unforgiven sin for those whose sins are not forgiven. Before we move on, let me, let me just take time to mention one specific sin this passage, I think, highlights, and that is the sin of indifference toward God. The sin of indifference toward God. I have to confess, I am convicted by the zeal of this paralyzed man and of his friends. Right? How often does our pursuit of the Lord fall short of the faith of these roof-digging guys? What do we say about the preciousness of Jesus to us by the way that we pursue him or by the way that we don't pursue him? Can you, can you sense the offensiveness of that, the sinfulness of that? Can you see that if we're to be on good terms with God, we need our sins to be forgiven? Which brings us to the third Thing we need to see in this passage, and that is an exercise in true authority, true faith, true need, true authority. Our biggest need is to have our sins forgiven, but forgiveness is invisible, right? Who is to say whose sin God forgives and whose he doesn't? The Bible doesn't teach that once your sins are forgiven, nothing hard ever happens to you. That's not how we know. 
right? Who, who has authority to dispense or to pronounce God's forgiveness, right? Whose verdict can we trust gives an accurate picture of our state before God? Is it a trusted friend? Is it a priest? Is it ourselves? Well, over the years, I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with numerous uh, Muslim friends and neighbors. Our Muslim friends and neighbors are usually very open uh, to talking about spiritual things, about God, about sin, about eternity. They take these things seriously, many of them. And when I've, when I've asked my Muslim friends and neighbors what they anticipate after they die, many of them have told me that they expect to be judged by God for how they have lived. That's what they're expecting. And when I've asked them, how do you think that that's going to go for you? What do you believe the verdict of that judgment will be? What they've said is, I don't know. And that's what Islam teaches. They don't know whether God will forgive their particular sins on the last day. And so they, I think as many people who, who don't practice Islam, try to live a good life and hope that on the last day, God will regard with favor their good deeds and turn a blind eye to all of their sin. But they don't know. Friend, do you know for certain how it's going to go for you on the day when you stand before God and are judged? Do you know whether your sins are forgiven? And how can you know? Jesus claims to have the authority to answer that question for you. Look with me again at verse 5. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. When the Old Testament prophet Nathan came to confront King David about his sin and David repented, Nathan told David, the Lord has put away your sins. Jesus is saying more than that. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, God forgives you. Jesus is saying, I forgive you. Right? Jesus is not claiming only to be able to discern and pronounce whether your sins are forgiven. He's claiming to be able to dispense forgiveness, to forgive you himself. And that claim stirs up a controversy. Understandably, look at verses 6 and 7. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribe's logic is not wrong. In order to forgive sins against God, you need the authority of God. But as we confessed in the words of the Chalcedonian Creed earlier this morning, Jesus is truly God. Verse 8 says this. It says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves... It's not entirely clear whether Jesus is just reading the room or whether there's divine insight involved, a glimpse into their hearts. Don't know. Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Look how Jesus will settle the question. Verse 9, Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
Jesus says, how shall we know whether this invisible feat that I've said I can do is accomplished? Let me work with you in the world that we can all see right now, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, both are rock hard to perform, but in one sense, saying to the paralytic, get up, take your bed and go home, is publicly verifiable. It's a demonstration that your authority is legitimate. And so Jesus proves what we can't see by working with what we can. Look with me at verses 10 to 12. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' way of referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Just as the Son of Man has authority to roll back the effects of sin, you may be sure that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, friend, let me ask you, what is your plan for taking care of your biggest problem? What is your plan for reconciling yourself to the God against whom we have all sinned? And what confidence do you have that that plan is going to work? Listen, there's a plan that doesn't leave you in doubt. There's a plan according to which you can know that your sins are forgiven. And that plan is faith in Jesus Christ. One Bible commentator points out that this story is kind of a microcosm of Jesus' entire ministry. So first... Jesus makes an astounding claim about himself. I can forgive sins. Second, the scribes accuse him of blasphemy internally and question him. And third, by raising up a paralyzed man, Jesus vindicates his authority. His claims are true. That's strikingly similar to the plot of the gospel of Mark. Throughout the gospel, Jesus makes astounding claims about his identity. His words and his works testify that he is the Son of God. But the scribes, the religious authorities, they ascribe Jesus' power to Satan. They suspect him of blasphemy. In fact, they publicly sentence him to death for blasphemy. And by the way, that's why Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Because in the marvelous plan of God, as Jesus is killed by his enemies on the cross... He takes on himself the sin debt of everyone who would trust in him so that after he rises from the dead, all who trust in him might be forgiven, might face God on the judgment day with their sins forgiven. Jesus makes an astounding claim about himself. He is challenged on that claim. And as proof that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable, God raises Jesus from the dead. And now anyone who will turn to him in faith will receive this verdict with divine authority from Jesus. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Christian, listen, if you belong to Jesus, these words are for you. Son, daughter, your sins are 
forgiven. If you're in Christ and you're suffering right now, if you're going through something hard, you may know that God is not giving you what you deserve for your sins. That is not what's going on as you suffer. Even if you are experiencing the discipline, the fatherly discipline of God for sin, what do we learn about God's discipline from Proverbs 3? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights, whom he surely forgives. Psalm 103 verse 10 says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Jesus Christ has authority to forgive your sins, the sins that keep you up at night. If you belong to him, if your faith is in him, they are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten that your biggest problem, your eternal problem, has been taken care of? Have you forgotten that your desperate and otherwise hopeless need has been met by Jesus? The crowd doesn't often get it right in Mark's gospel. And even, clear, even here, it's not clear how much they understand. But surely they're right in this response there in verse 12. It says that they were all amazed and glorified God. In a moment, we'll do the same with these words. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Saints, let's pray as we sing, before we sing. Father, thank you that Christ has regarded our helpless estate. Thank you that our true need has been met by Christ's true authority. Lord, would you give us true, needy, eager, humble faith that we might follow the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly all our days. Do this, we ask, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.